If you have Bibles, we are continuing on in the Gospel of John, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, and so if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 886 uh, is where you will find uh, today's, today's text. I know many of you have been um, Christians, have been around the church uh, for probably many years of your life, and so this will be a reminder in some way to you this morning. Uh, but for those of you who might be new or just exploring Christianity, a welcome to you. You'll come to find relatively quickly that the Christian faith involves both an invitation and ascending. So there's an invitation to come and see, to experience who Jesus is. And then in the center, you're, you're met by Jesus. There's an encounter with Jesus. You're transformed by the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And then there is a ascending, a go and die, so to speak. So there's a come and see and a go and die. Today's text, uh, here at the end of the first chapter of uh, the Gospel of John, is all about the invitation. Uh, it's all about come and see. And what comes to life in this text, what I love about the message of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that though the Gospel is in no way relative, so it's, there's definitive content and there's truth that is to be believed in the Gospel. It's in no way relative. But the Gospel is a message that can meet the entire spectrum of humanity exactly where they are in any given moment. So you need not be a certain type of person or have a certain disposition or personality. You need not have matured to a certain point in your life to encounter Jesus in a way that can and does genuinely change you. And that's true for these four individuals that we're going to see here in this text. That's also true, I would encourage you to see this this morning, it's also true for you. It's true about you. So I don't know where you find yourself this Advent season, where you find yourself today. I don't know which of these four men's lives, at least this snippet of their life, will most resonate with you and where you are in, in your life right now. But I am confident that this text contains not only a historical narrative, real-life events that happen to real people, but it also includes an invitation for you and for me to come and to see, to encounter Jesus Christ. So may God give us ears to hear. May God give us eyes to see. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 35 and reading through the end of that first chapter. The next day again, John, which is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his, brother, his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Emmanuel, Jesus, as we wait for your return, help us now to see your glory, to see your love through the reading, through the preaching of your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. At the end of this first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, we're introduced to, as you heard, four very different men. And as Jesus calls them in this moment of their calling, we see an aspect of Jesus' nature and Jesus' character that meets each of them exactly where they are in that moment. So we're going to consider each of these four in turn. First is Andrew. And what Andrew's calling teaches us is that because Jesus is the fulfillment, come and see. Because Jesus is the fulfillment, come and see. So the story picks up, if you were with us last week, it picks up where we left off there. John the Baptist is with his disciples, specifically two of his disciples here. And though John the Baptist has been serving, uh, preparing the way for Jesus to come for many years, he's now decreasing, he's now taking a step back so that Jesus might increase. And, and as we saw last week, he's not just, he's not just doing that um, because he thinks he needs to. He's doing that to make his joy complete. He's doing that willingly and joyfully, and he's turning his own followers away from himself so they would follow Jesus instead. One of these followers is Andrew. Who is Andrew? Andrew in this story, we might call him the faithful follower. The faithful follower. So even before Andrew encounters Jesus, he's looking for the kingdom of God. He's following John the Baptist. He's been doing that. He's been participating in the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus for however long. We don't know exactly. And when John says to him, okay, Jesus is now here. Here's the one we've been preparing for. Andrew immediately, without hesitation, turns and immediately begins to follow Jesus instead. What is it about Jesus that meets Andrew in this moment? It's that Jesus is the fulfillment He's the Messiah, as he says, the Christ, the anointed one. He's the one that's been foretold by the Old Testament prophets. He's the one for whom the people of God have been waiting, the one for whom they've been preparing for generations. And now he's here. So come and see, Jesus says to Andrew, come and spend the rest of the day with me. In me, you're going to find the fulfillment of all the promises of God, that God is going to redeem a people for himself. He's going to bless all the nations of the earth. Some of us this Advent season find ourselves in a place like Andrew. We're faithful followers. But the question is, who or what are we following so faithfully? And are we perhaps stuck following something that was meant to point us to something or someone else? So play the story out a little bit differently. What if Andrew didn't follow Jesus here, but out of a deep sense of loyalty or devotion, 
he kept on following John the Baptist instead? What if he didn't actually follow the, the advice, the counsel of John the Baptist to go and follow Jesus instead? Devotion and loyalty and commitment, they are great things, but only if they are directed toward the right thing. They're great things, but only if they're directed toward the right person. And how this plays out in the religious landscape today and even within Christianity is that some of the most misdirected people in the world might be referred to as faithful followers. They have a high moral bar. They care a lot about other people and good causes. They serve, they give of their time, they give of their money, they give of themselves. They might actually do that better than a lot of other people, including me. But are they following the right thing? Are they following the right thing? See, all of what the Old Testament prophets prophesied about was meant to point to Jesus. As were, as it says later in this text, all of the laws, the commandments that God gave to his people beginning with Moses and continuing all the way through John the Baptist. But as imperfect, sinful, broken people, you and I have no chance of actually living up to that standard of the law. And so following those commands could never accomplish for you and for me our salvation. We could never live that out well enough. We could never do that well enough, accomplish enough to earn and to achieve the perfection that God requires. The beautiful paradox is that our inability is the point. Our inability is the point that Christianity is not about what you are able to do. It is about what Jesus came to do and has done. The fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophets is Jesus. And later the apostle Paul will go far to, so far to say that if salvation could come by our efforts, that Christ died for nothing. That if salvation could come by our efforts, if devotion and loyalty, and loyalty to morality or good deeds, if that were enough, that Christ died for nothing. For Andrew in this moment, if faithfully following John the Baptist into his baptism of repentance was enough, then Jesus died for nothing. And so if that's your paradigm, if you, that you must earn your salvation, that you must earn your favor from God by your faithful following, then what I would call you to this morning is to, like Andrew, come and see Jesus and find in him the fulfillment of what the perfect standard of God points to, that it's not about what you are able to do, it's about what Jesus did, and learn to believe and to trust in Jesus' faithfulness instead of your own. Andrew encounters Jesus. He sees him as this fulfillment and he turns and he does follow him instead. And in his joy, we'll see him do this over and over again in the Gospel of John. In his joy, he then brings other people to see Jesus as well. And the first person he brings is his very own brother, Simon Peter. So second, and here's what we see in the calling of Peter. Because Jesus transforms your identity, come and see the interactions, and hopefully you heard this as we read it, the interactions between Jesus and Andrew and Jesus and Simon Peter, they're very different. They're very different. Andrew is the one who takes the initiative to follow Jesus. Simon Peter is brought to Jesus. In fact, Simon Peter is entirely passive the whole time in this text. He's the only one of these four not to make some kind of profession, some kind of confession about who Jesus is. The entire time we see Simon Peter in the first chapter of John's gospel, he's entirely passive. He does nothing. He says nothing. Now, who is Simon Peter? What else do we know of him from the rest of Scripture? Besides being the brother of Andrew, he's one of the 12 
one of the 12 followers, the 12 disciples of Jesus. And he, beyond that, becomes, quickly becomes part of Jesus' inner circle, one of the, the three men closest to Jesus. He becomes the leader among the apostles. And then eventually, after Jesus ascends back into heaven, he becomes the leader of the early church. But prior to all of that, if there's one thing that we could say about Simon Peter, it's that he is incredibly well-meaning, but he is often misguided. He's incredibly well-meaning, but he's often misguided. Sometimes he's way too zealous. Like when he cuts off another guy's ear trying to defend Jesus. Or maybe worst, when he rebukes Jesus himself. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, you won't. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I actually am going to do that. Sometimes he's overconfident. Like when he promises, I'll never deny you, Jesus. Maybe everybody else will fall away. I will not. Sometimes he's just plain confused as I'm sure I would be, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus appears in all of his glory, his glorified state, and God the Father speaks over him audibly, and Moses and Elijah appear, and the only thing that Peter can think to say in that moment is, like, should I build a few tents? I'm not really sure what to do here. What do you want me to do? Should I build some tents? So as the Apostle John is writing this many years after this calling of Simon Peter, What stands out to him about this instant and what aspect of Jesus' nature and character stands out to him in this instant is what? It's that Jesus is the one who transforms. Saying nothing, doing nothing, Simon Peter is brought to Jesus. And Jesus just looks at him. Just looks at him. And I envision in that moment, Jesus looking into his eyes, through his eyes, and into his soul. And thinking something like, I know who this man is. Not only do I know who he is right now, I know who he will become. And he says to him, so you're Simon. So you're Simon. You will be called Cephas. You will be Peter. You will be the rock. And that's it. That's the entire exchange when Peter comes and sees Jesus in this text. There's no fanfare There's not even a response from Peter, but this is a monumental moment. Your name is symbolic for who you are. So this is not just a name change. This is an identity transformation. And as misdirected, as misguided as Peter will be at times in the years that follow, Peter is now, from this moment, the rock. He will be the one to lead and to establish the early church in Jesus' name. He will be bold. He will... Confess Jesus as the Christ when it costs him dearly. He will confess Jesus as the Christ we know from history when it costs him his own life. Solely because in a moment where he is completely passive and brought to Jesus, Jesus cements this transformation in him. Some of us resonate with Peter. We're well-meaning, but we're misguided. We're overzealous when we should be patient. We're overconfident when we should be humble. Or maybe we're just confused. Perhaps you're in a place right now where life just feels fruitless, where nothing that you do feels good enough or effective enough or feels like it's accomplishing anything at all. In the example of Peter this morning, be reminded that Jesus is the one who transforms. That if it were up to you and me to engineer effectiveness or to do anything really of value or substance at all with our lives, we should already know and be convinced of from our own experience in this life that we are completely unable to bring that about. But Jesus transforms. Before you and I do even one thing for him, 
Jesus is the one who gives you a new name. That we were once sons and daughters of the darkness, but we have now become sons of the day, sons of the light, sons and daughters of the king of heaven and earth. And when Jesus looks at you, just as he looks at Peter here, he doesn't only see who you are now. He looks at you and he sees who you will become. And even more than that, he's the one who's going to move you from this moment, from this starting point to that finish line. The new identity comes immediately. The transformation comes slowly. And as many of you well know, painfully, painfully slowly at times. But he will bring to completion that good work that he begins. Think about who Peter becomes. Think about who, how many other people come and see and experience and encounter Jesus because of who Peter is. Even the words he wrote down that we read and we believe today in the Holy Scriptures. It's because Jesus is the one who transforms our identity. Third, because Jesus' presence is enough to convince, come and see, come and see. If you thought that account of Simon Peter and Jesus was short, his encounter with Philip is even shorter than that. Jesus goes to Galilee. He goes up to the north, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. He finds Philip, and he says even less to Philip than he said to Peter a few moments before, a few days before, however much time had passed in between there. Just two words to Philip. Follow me. And from the narrative, it becomes clear that Philip starts following. And he starts pretty immediately bringing other people to come and to see Jesus too. Now this encounter is so casual, it's hard to believe. Like, hey, Philip, how about you stop whatever it is you've been doing with your life, change all of your plans, leave whatever people you love and care about behind, and devote yourself to me completely, and orient your entire life to learning from me and doing the things that I do. And Philip's like, well, yeah, okay, that sounds good, let's go. No questions, no concerns, no doubts, he just goes. He just starts following. It's really good that Jesus is a servant. It's really good that Jesus has integrity because if not, this would be one of those moments where you'd have to expect him to kind of put his arm around Philip and say, hey, as we're walking, there's this Nigerian prince and he's got this great fortune. Uh, if, you, if you just give me your social security number, your bank account, we'll go ahead and take care of the details from there. Philip has this childlike simplicity in faith, immediate responsiveness. And so Jesus simply showing up and being present convinces him. There's something about the presence of Jesus that has the power to melt away the defenses and objections and every other barrier to belief we might throw up. So when Jesus comes to Galilee, when he finds Philip, when he is present face to face with Philip, it takes two words and Philip has just reoriented his whole life. Some of us find ourselves in a place like Philip. Some people are in a place where they truly can respond to the call of Jesus with a childlike faith, a childlike simplicity. Jesus says this, I believe him, and that's good enough for me, so let's go. This is actually the very thing that all of us are meant to do as Christians. So we're not meant to have our vision of Jesus blurred by our baggage. We're not meant to be obstinate and slow to obey because of our cynicism. We're not meant to neglect genuine love for other people because we're paralyzed by our own fears. We're meant to respond over and over again, just like Philip does in this moment, with childlike faith and simplicity. 
But because many, so many of us are not like this, or at least we're not in a place like this many times in our lives, maybe even right now, we struggle to think that people like this even exist at all. How is it possible to have that kind of faith that Philip has in this moment? If you're not like this, then at a minimum, you'll probably start to discount the Philips of the Christian faith as gullible or naive. Perhaps you even start to despise them. Perhaps you even start to write them off as being shallow and inauthentic. But what if that's because your baggage, my baggage, has so obscured our perception that we can't even conceive of someone being completely sincere, completely authentic, and filled with sincere faith at the very same time. Philip is not perfect in this. And as we continue in John's gospel and read later, he's going to say to Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus. That will be enough for us. And Jesus says to him, like, really, Philip? Have you not been with me this whole time and you still don't see he says to him, if you have seen me, you, you've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. So even for those with childlike faith like Philip, the vision of Jesus can become blurry and does become blurry at times in our lives. So whether we find ourselves right now in a place like Philip or not, may we all pursue his response to Jesus here. May we come and see, may the presence of Jesus be enough to convince us, to capture our awe, to melt away our baggage and our cynicism and whatever other barriers we might have. It may be enough to compel us to follow him. Fourth, because Jesus welcomes your doubt, come and see. Because Jesus welcomes your doubt, come and see. It takes Philip, best we can tell, about a half a second to turn around and to invite someone else to encounter Jesus. And that someone else is named Nathaniel. Who is Nathaniel? Who is Nathaniel? It's possible that he, it's another name for Bartholomew, one of Jesus' 12. It's also possible that Nathaniel is part of the larger group of Jesus' disciples, not uh, among the 12, but among the 70 that the gospel accounts mention that Jesus sends out at another point in his ministry. When we first meet him in the story, though, Nathaniel is not like any of these other men. He's the cynic. He's the skeptical one. So Philip says, we found him. We found the one. We found the Christ. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? If you guys are familiar with the old Saturday Night Live sketch, Debbie Downer. Everybody seen that? Nathaniel's like the Debbie Downer in this moment. There's these three instances of these men getting this great, this great interaction with Jesus and following him. And then it comes to Nathaniel like, we found him, Nathaniel. We got him. And he's like, wah, wah. There's nothing special about Nazareth. The best we can tell from historical record, no more than 2,000 people would have lived there at this point in time. That's probably a very generous estimate. So Nathaniel's not impressed. He's not impressed. Maybe if this guy was from Jerusalem, maybe if this guy was from Rome, but Nazareth, essentially Nathaniel's saying, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. In the face of Nathaniel's skepticism, Philip and for any of you who have that childlike faith and simplicity, don't wrestle deeply with doubts. This is a great example to follow. He does the perfect thing. And he just extends an invitation, come and see for yourself. Come inquire, come check it out for yourself. And Nathaniel, to his credit, takes him up on it. He goes with Philip and he goes to Jesus. And what happens? Jesus meets Nathaniel right where he's at in that moment. 
Jesus doesn't freak out at the skepticism or the cynicism or the doubt. He welcomes it. He welcomes it. He actually affirms that part of Nathanael's character. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In other words, here is a man with no guile, no gullibility. He affirms Nathanael's integrity. Nathanael's not one who's just going to take somebody else's word for it. He's going to go and investigate. He's going to go check it out for himself. Some of us find ourselves today, this Advent season, in a place like Nathanael. And probably many more of you did if you were with us this fall and we studied Ecclesiastes together. So you might have said at the beginning of the fall, I'm like a Philip. But then Matt made you study Ecclesiastes and now you're more like a Nathanael. It's very possible that could have happened. So you might find yourself doubtful, skeptical, cynical. Nathanael was skeptical about Nazareth, this hometown of where the Messiah would be. Maybe you're skeptical about Jesus' resurrection. Did that actually happen? Is that actually a historical thing? Or his claims to be God? Or his exclusivity, that, that he claims to be the only way? Maybe you're skeptical about how a good God is in any way compatible with all the evil and the brokenness that we see in the world around us all the time. Whatever it is, see in this example of Nathaniel that Jesus is big enough, that he's powerful enough, that he's able enough, that he's willing enough to meet you in the midst of your cynicism. And the reason that that's true is because before you and I ever come to see Jesus, Jesus sees us. What does Jesus say to Nathaniel? I have seen you. I have seen you. I know you. I know the doubts. I know the skepticism. I'm actually the one who created you with that mind, that mind which refuses to be deceived. In fact, there isn't a doubt in your mind that you could entertain if I had, gi- if I had not given you the capacity to do so. But Jesus doesn't just say, I have seen you. He is there. He says, here I am. I have come. And so if you are like Nathaniel, if you find yourself cynical and skeptical this morning, see in the celebration of Advent, in the celebration of Christmas, the definitive word from God that he is not afraid from your doubt, of your doubt. That the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Jesus taking on human flesh and dwelling among us, enables us and especially enables the cynics among us to taste and to see the mercy and the grace of God in a way that's not possible if God remains distant in heaven. We can come and see because Jesus has seen and come. We can come and see because Jesus has seen and he's come. And what I love about the way that this ends is that the clearest and loudest profession, the clearest and loudest confession of who Jesus is comes not from faithful, fa- faithful follower Andrew, not from childlike faith Philip, not from the rock Peter, but from the cynic. Jesus, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. You are not just a human deliverer. You're the king over all with all authority. You're not just a good man. You are divine. You are the son of God. And what we see here is that from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and this continues to be true all the way to today, convinced cynics become some of the greatest heralds of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was true of Nathaniel. It's been true of many people even to our day. Now today, people can't come and see Jesus in human flesh the way these men did. So how do you and I come and see? How do we invite other people to encounter Jesus? We invite them to come and see in the word of God, in Holy Scripture, in these eyewitness accounts of those who literally saw him. We invite people to come and see in our own lives 
Those of us who are Christians, our lives are these glimpses of the tastes of the work of God. And we invite people to come and see that work that God has done in us, is doing in us, is doing through us. We invite people to come and see in the way that we as the church, we as Christians, live and speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought deeply about that line that we have in our vision statement that our liturgists and other leaders share often here at our church. But it means that because the Spirit of God is in us, we are stewards truly of the very presence of Jesus. Imperfect, incredibly imperfect and flawed, but stewards of the presence of Jesus nonetheless. And so we invite people to come and to see from what they experience in us. And my hope, as I pray it would be your hope, has been and continues to be that through Scripture, through our lives, through the ministry of the local church, and specifically this local church, that people in these neighborhoods, people in this region, people in this time and place that God has loved and has sent us as his people into, would always be invited to come and to see Jesus. So to the Andrews, prone to become stuck in a system fulfilled by Jesus. Stop this morning looking to your morality and your discipline. Come and see the fulfillment of all your striving in him. Be reminded that Christianity is not about what you are able to do, but about what Jesus has come to do and has done. Faithful as you think you are at religious activity, your salvation does not stand on your faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God, the Son himself, incarnate in Jesus Christ. To the Simon Peters, well-meaning, but misdirected or just plain confused. Come and see the Jesus who transforms. The one who, before you do a single thing for him, sees who you will become, and he gives you a new name. Come and see the one who will bring to completion that transforming work he begins in you. To the Phillips, who with childlike faith stand ready to follow, come and see And as you do, may you catch a glimpse of who Jesus really is and may merely seeing him convince you. May it capture your astonishment, your awe, as it does Philip's. And may that glimpse sustain a lifetime of following him. And to the Nathaniels who are cynical, may that never hold you back from a genuine search. Come and see Jesus welcoming you in the midst of your skepticism, in the midst of your doubt. And in your seeking, may you find that Jesus has already seen you. May you come and see because truly Jesus has seen and come. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we fill our minds and our hearts this morning with joy and hope because of this Advent season, because of the difference the incarnation actually makes. That we can come and see that we can encounter you be it in your word, be it in your people filled with your spirit, or for these four men, be it in you embodied in human flesh because of the incarnation. You have come into this world, you have taken on flesh, that you might live a perfect life, that you might love us to take our place on the cross, that you might be be resurrected from the dead to give us new life. And I pray that we would know that deeply this morning. I pray you would break up whatever remains hard in our hearts, whether we consider ourselves to be Christians or not, and that we would come and see and be convinced as you meet us where we are. We come now to this table and we remember at Advent specifically as you gave your body and blood 
that it took this incarnation, this miraculous work of you entering this world to have a body, to have a blood to give. And so we're grateful to you. We pray that you would meet us by your spirit as we come. In Jesus' name.